As I mentioned at the outset of our service, we are continuing in a series called Holy Healing. Holy Healing that Dr. Abram started two weeks ago and will continue for the next few weeks through the season of Lent. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Listen for the word of God. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word. May it be a word for us in our lives, on our journey. Amen. For a little while, right after law school, I worked on white-collar criminal defense cases. Really, I ended up being a bit of a runner for the senior attorney who didn't really want to go back and forth to the jail and really didn't care too much for the clients either. My job, though, was mainly to explain paperwork and the legal process to these clients, and I actually loved it very much. I would walk the few blocks to the county jail, and I'd usually have documents and forms to discuss and go over with our clients. Most of these clients were business executives who had been arrested for some sort of financial crimes. Nearly always, they were arrested in the middle of the night or the early morning hours while still in their pajamas, while at the same time, all of their records, their computers, their telephones were all seized from their homes and their offices. And so many of the times I was bringing with them their own files, their own documents that we had copied from the government. Somehow our clients would always tell us that the answers to their innocence were in those precious documents. And I always believed them. And it fell on me, though, to sort through these documents, to read through all of their emails, to review everything. These men, and at least in my experience, they were always men, had some common themes, themes that were woven throughout their stories. I read these themes in their emails, and I heard these themes in their impassioned explanations to me of, what, of the, why they had done nothing wrong. But most of all, I experienced these themes when I sat across the glass window talking to them through a telephone, looking them in their eyes with them on the inside and in their yellow jumpsuits, a far cry from their custom suits and Ferraris, looking them in the eyes and knowing that they felt, with all of those things gone, that they had already lost it all. You see, the dominant theme that rose up to the surface with every single one of them was that their identity was linked to an accumulation. 
the obvious sorts of accumulation, right? Accumulation of wealth, accumulation of position, accumulation of power, of influence, accumulation that itself was never satisfying enough, so much so that they would risk all of it, risk their freedom. None of it was enough. But really, there was something deeper to it. Because this accumulation became the source of their identity and value. In losing those things that they had worked so hard to gain, those layers of their identity, it wasn't necessarily even the loss of those things they had accumulated, but rather, it was the way that their very identity was so linked to those things that they had obtained. And not just their identity, but their value, their self-value, and perhaps even more painful to them, their perception of how others might value them. So when I was sitting with them, as they were going over their scribbled notes, scribbled notes that were always leading through a circular maze to the explanation of their innocence, as I was sitting with them, what I realized was that they were gasping and grasping for not just a return of their normalcy, but they were trying to put back the pieces of their broken lives and their identity that was shaped by this fragile accumulation and their risky quest to accumulate more, more money, more possessions, more people around them. And I saw fear. Fear to even imagine what might exist when those identities were stripped away. Accumulation, you see, becomes linked with our identity. And our identity becomes linked with all of our various accumulations. Not, not just accumulations of possessions or wealth, but our accumulations, our gathering, our layering of all of those things that might define us whether they're those physical things or perhaps even our accomplishments, our positions, our skills, our number of friends. And I'm intentionally pluralizing this word, this concept of identities, because we all have them. We all have layers of identities in our lives. If I asked you to describe yourself with one word or phrase at a time, one identity, you could probably come up with multiple of these, multiple identities. You're a child, you might be a parent, a CEO, a retiree, a teacher, a flute player, a gardener. You get the picture, right? There are so many things that identify us. A friend of mine uses this technique where he gets a group of people together, maybe five or six people in a circle, and he leads an exercise where he asks them to make one of these statements, I am, I am a lawyer, I am a pastor, and they go around the circle, and the only rule is that you can't repeat one that you've already heard, and they keep going around, and the first couple of rounds, it's easy. Because those things come naturally to us, right? We, we've, we've shaped our identities, and so we know those things. But after a few rounds, it becomes a little more difficult. The obvious layers of identity have been shared. 
They've been set aside. And then we find that beneath the surface of those obvious identities lie the identities that are a little deeper. Identities we may not even feel comfortable putting words to. Identities as we peel back the layers that we might even be covering up with those other identities that we've spent so much time cultivating, accumulating. It's then that we even see the things of our lives that we wouldn't necessarily share with others, especially, my friends, others at church. Things we think that God wouldn't want to see about our identity. But this is the wonder of our God. Our God who knows us so deeply, who knows each of those identities. Our God who loves us in all of who we are, even when we strip all those things away. And so you see, the invitation of Christ is an invitation to our whole being. Consistent throughout Scripture, we see this. And our identity in Christ becomes found in knowing and accepting our true self. The self that includes our identities that have been a part of our life, our identities on the surface. But our true self is also that identity that includes the layers beneath the layers we protect and keep to ourselves. The true self is found in the identities that lie beneath our protective accumulation of identity. The true self is found in the parts of our identity that struggle, that fear, that have shame. The parts of our lives that cause us to cry when no one is looking. All of those areas, our identities, the layers of our identity, and even the things we associate with our identity, these are not the problem in and of themselves. Accumulation of our identities is not the problem. The accumulation, though, can add so many layers, though, layers of protection, that it can create what has been called by some the false self. The false self, that is, the self that we present to the world and those around us that limits our ability to be authentic and vulnerable with others. This false self and our promotion of the false self then can make it difficult for us to draw closer to God. We build up these walls that keep God out as though we could even do that. And so on a journey of faith, on a life of faith, this is what we're called to do. We're called to encounter God on our journey. And faith isn't about figuring everything out or having everything figured out. In fact, it's really the opposite. Because if we had it all figured out, we wouldn't need to be on the journey. Thomas Keating, an American a modern American monk and contemplative who died just a few years ago wrote this. The spiritual journey is not a career or a success story. It is a series of small humiliations of that false self that become more and more profound. These make room inside us for the Holy Spirit to come and heal. What prevents us from being available to God is gradually evacuated as we keep getting closer and closer to our center, the place where God dwells within us 
as redeemed people. When we peel back the layers of our accumulated identities and even shed some of them, our identities, our masks, our protections, when we shed them, we come back to the place where God dwells. Thomas Merton, another monk and theologian, put it this way. He writes, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. The pure glory of God in us. And so, yes, this is our journey. This is our journey of faith. It's our journey in the church. It's our journey with one another. It's a journey, a path that we walk with others, with our fellow travelers, ones who help us carry the load and walk the walk. God has given us, God has given you the gift of one another so that we can help one another find our true selves, to be authentic and honest with one another, setting aside, even if for a moment, those other identities that have defined us for so long, and allowing ourselves to find with one another where God is moving in our lives. By verbalizing our struggles and sharing our journeys with others, telling our story, we come closer to doing that hard work that Keating describes as making room, making room in our lives for the Holy Spirit to come and heal. Do we have room with all that we accumulate, all of our identities, all of our worries? Do we have room for the Holy Spirit to come and heal? Let's turn to our gospel text this morning. This text is more complicated than it appears. We've probably all heard sermons preached on the story of the widow's might, as it's often called. We've also probably heard stewardship sermons preached using this woman as a model of what we'd call sacrificial giving. This is not a stewardship sermon. Other people, the rich, the rich, our text says, give in a way that is without consequence. But this woman gives the last of her money. And so, so many times when we hear this text, this is where uh, we look at the woman and we say, let's be like her, right? Let's be like her. Let's give like her. But in reality, for most of us, if we look at that transaction at hand, our giving will never look like this woman's giving. As much as it would be helpful, right, to the church, our giving will never look like this woman's giving. We look a lot more like the others, the ones Jesus references, who contribute some portion of their abundance. And so often the takeaway when people look at this text is, be like the widow with your financial giving, but we don't give much other explanation. And if this is the basic financial message, right, if the financial message is the message of our interpretation, first of all, this is a terrible text to use during stewardship, right? It's a terrible text because we're never going to be able to be like this woman when it comes to our giving. 
And yet we hear it all the time. Oh, give like the widow. But you know, it isn't altogether clear that Jesus even says that in this text. That Jesus even says, give of your money like the widow. What Jesus says is that the widow's giving of everything she had is more than what the others are giving. And that's not wrong, right? Like much of what Jesus says, he points to the obvious. This is obvious that the others aren't giving as a percentage of their assets the same measure that the woman is giving. But there's nowhere in this text that Jesus says or even implies that we should give all of our money like the widow, that we should give all of it. But often we take it there. If the widow's giving is our model, we're never going to be able to match her. If the widow giving all of her money is on a pedestal of righteousness, we'll never be able to do the same. And in some ways, if that's our theme at stewardship, it makes it even easier for us, right? Because I'm never going to be able to be like her, so why should I even try? The target is unattainable and it might even be irresponsible. But there's something more interesting about what Jesus does say here when we look a little closer. Most modern translations of this text, including the one I read this morning, say that Jesus observes that the woman gave everything she had to live on. But when we look a little more closely at the Greek, what Jesus says can be translated as the woman gives her whole life. The woman gives her whole life as an offering to God. Now this text becomes a little more interesting. When we think about offering, when we hear this text even, we obviously think about money. The coins rattling in the temple as the woman places them. But what if the offering we're actually invited in this text to bring is our whole lives? our identity shed of all those accumulations, or even with all of the identities that make us up and define us, all of those things we have accumulated. And what if our offering begins with the examination of all of who we are, our intellect, our faith, our doubts, our pains, our losses, our loves, our hurts, and yes, our money and our resources and our skills, and our relationships, those parts of us, of our true self at the deep core of who we are, examining ourselves, peeling back the layers, and then bringing all of who we are before God, our offering of ourselves, our whole life, our whole messy life, shedding the accumulation of identities, the accumulation even of our dreams, the accumulation of all the things which could seem to distract us from God, we pare it back and bring our true self before God. And with God's help, with God's wonder and God's way, we allow ourselves to be healed by the God who loves us, the God who knows us, the God who created us in the divine image. And friends, it is then that we reach the moment of experiencing beneath and maybe even in those things of our accumulation, we reach the moment of experiencing our identity in Christ. Our identity, which Merton calls the pure glory of God in us. 
This is where we find the antidote to accumulation. Our holy healing occurs when we allow ourselves to be found by Christ. Bring your being. Bring your life. Bring all of who, we, who you are. Allow all of it to be God's, for it is God's already. And so our challenge is to ask this question over and over again in our own lives and in our own ways. What does that mean for me? What does that mean that my life is God's already? What does it mean then to put everything I have into loving God and loving neighbor? What does it look like in your job, in your workplace, in your family life, in your relationships, in your interactions with strangers? What does it look like? What does it look like when we allow ourselves to experience this holy healing that occurs when we put ourselves, body and soul, before God? She gave her whole life, Jesus says. May it be so for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.